Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Andrea Horvath is Hamilton's first female mayor. The Ford government is set to announce new municipal zoning rules. Do you know someone who's living with dementia? We have the latest installments in our five-part series with JFE Soji Power Canada. This year has been tough sledding, but some pundits say, you just wait. And Britain's new PM is breaking barriers. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It was a nail biter for sure, but that's not a bad thing. It was a vigorous campaign. It was a hard-fought campaign for all of the candidates, and uh, and I feel proud to have uh, have gained the, the trust of uh, the majority of people uh, in this city. Uh, but it, it doesn't mean that uh, that the folks that weren't successful are not still going to be a big part of the future of our community. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That is the voice of Hamilton Mayor-elect Andrea Horvath, a extremely close mayoral race. And Ms. Horvath coming out on top is also the first female mayor in this city's history. That's something to hang your hat on as well. And Ms. Horvath joins us now here on Good Morning Hamilton. Andrea, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. Congratulations are in order. How does it feel to be the mayor-elect here in Hamilton? It feels uh, it feels uh, not only fantastic, but, uh, you know, we have some challenges and we have some opportunities, and so it's very exciting as well. When you left council many moons ago, did you ever think you'd be back? Yeah, that was back in 2004, and uh, I, I left to do a job that uh, I feel good about in terms of the results that I was able to achieve for people, uh, but I'm really happy to be back home in, in Hamilton, and I can say that the, um, I mean, I've never left, I've, I've always lived here, but uh, being on the streets, talking to people in community all over, all parts of this great city has been absolutely inspirational. It just has felt so wonderful. So it's... Um, you know, it's not something I necessarily planned, uh, but I'm certainly uh, I'm certainly thrilled and honored uh, to be given this opportunity and this chance to work with so many different people uh, to make sure our city prospers and thrives for everyone. The final vote total was really close. This was a squeaker. You had uh, 41.68, 41.7% to the final tally. Keenan Loomis, the runner-up, at 40.5%. Did you think it was going to be that close? Uh, we knew it was going to be a, a, a close race for sure. Uh, we we knew going in that it was going to be a nail biter, and boy, I bit my nails until <laughs> almost midnight. <laughs> it was uh, yeah, it was. We knew it was going to be tight, but but I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it was a good it was a good uh, campaign. Lots of ideas came to the forefront. Lots of people got engaged, even though the turnout wasn't what I think people had wanted or had hoped. Certainly, I had hoped it would have been a higher uh, turnout. But it was um, it was it was a close campaign, I think, because we were both or all of us, all of the mayoral candidates actually were were very uh, busy, very engaged, and we worked all worked very very hard. And I want to thank all of those folks that put their hat in the ring, Mr. Loomis, Mr. Bertina, uh, and all of the other mayoral candidates. It was uh, it was a great campaign because because those folks made it so. It was great to see 90-plus candidates uh, throughout the city of Hamilton running for the mayor's chair and the, the 15 board seats that were up for grabs, so it's nice to see the engagement that way. But you did mention the turnout at 35%, um, which is kind of discouraging. You know, last time around in 2018, it was 38%. We're obviously trending in the wrong direction. Hopefully we can, uh, you know, flip that around. Do you think that benefited you or someone else in the campaign? 
you know, I don't know that that's a call that would, that can be made. I, I think that um, I think that you know what what we do though have to take from it is a responsibility to engage Hamiltonians in their in the order of government, the the level of government that is really most impactful in their lives. And hopefully, over the next four years, myself and all of the uh, the councillor elects that, that have been um, you know given. You know, given a, a leadership role in their communities together, we can we can really show Hamiltonians that yes, things can be wonderful at City Hall. Uh, you can have your concerns dealt with uh, effectively at City Hall. We can come together and do great things for your your community at City Hall. And most importantly, we can stay in touch with you so that you, as a Hamiltonian, feel motivated uh, to um, you know to, to have your voice count on Election Day next time around. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Andrea Horvath, the mayor-elect in the city of Hamilton after a squeaker of a tally in uh, the mayor's race and a lot of other very close award races as well. Uh, your first order of business, what's, what does the first 100 days of uh, the mayorship look for you? Oh, there's a number of things. Of course, there were a num- uh, new folks uh, that were elected that I want to get to know a little bit, so I'll be arranging those conversations but once we're sworn in and, and ready to go, of course, the budget is, is looming. I mean, it's one of the first things that we have to deal with. But there are also pieces that I've made commitments to around gathering folks to talk about exactly what I was just referencing. How do we, how do we engage people better? How do we uh, deal with the uh, accountability and the transparency that folks talked about during this campaign? So within the first 100 days, I'll be putting together that table or that, uh, that group of people uh, to, uh, to do that review. Uh, we saw some challenges with the election last night in terms of the process. I'll be getting uh, together with senior management and uh, city manager uh, to uh, to review some of the concerns that folks have shared with me uh, and others, I'm certain, uh, about uh, how the city functions and, and whether there are things we can be and should be doing better to provide a better customer service attitude uh, to Hamiltonians and, and the people that make this city tick. Uh, so those are just those are just a couple of the things, uh, but um, but there's there's a lot of work to do here, and uh, and I'm just very excited to get the opportunity uh, to do exactly that to to engage people to collaborate. These are the things I talked about, but they weren't just talking points. That's how I operate, and uh, I'm really looking forward to to doing that work. There are nine other new faces around the council chambers, maybe more than what some had even expected to have happened after this election. Is that something you're looking forward to uh, moving this city forward with a bunch of new people around the uh, the horseshoe at, in council chambers? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I, I think that one of the things that we have to take um, seriously is the the need to, to have a proper onboarding process where that, because we are quite a diverse city uh, and we're very big uh, in terms of our geographical uh, expanse and the different kinds of communities that make, uh, that make up Hamilton. So I'd, I really want to see some work done uh, with, uh, with all of our new faces as well as the, you know, the returning counselors uh, to make sure that people have a, a good understanding of, you know, of the, of the things that, that Hamiltonians care about in all parts of Hamilton. And so I, I think that's an obligation and responsibility. Yes, people are responsible for their own ward and for their own community, but we all have a collective responsibility to, to send this city, to take this city uh, into the future. And to do that, we have to understand what the ship looks like. And so I'm really looking forward, uh, hopefully very soon, to start um, having some impact on what that onboarding looks like. It's great that 10 new faces are around the council table. I'm happy to be there 
as somebody that's got some experience and, and got some leadership, uh, um, you know, uh, cred, if you will, or or uh, capacity that I've gained over the years. And I'm, I'm just so excited to be given the opportunity to work with all of these new people uh, to, um, you know, to help make our city thrive. Well, I think we can all look forward to what's in store for the years to come. Uh, Ms. Horvath, again, congratulations on a big win and looking forward to bigger and better things for this city. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Rick. Take care. You too. That's Andrea Horvath, Mayor-elect, City of Hamilton. Hamiltonians casting their ballots. 35% turnouts. I think we're all expecting a little bit more than that, or at least hoping for. And uh, 41.7% putting a big X beside the name Horvath. 40.5%. Yeah, it was that close. Uh, voting for Keenan Loomis. Uh, Bob Bertina coming in a distant third at 12%. And as I mentioned, lots of change around the council table as well. Nine new councillors. Uh, Horvath in as the new mayor, so ten new faces at Hamilton City Hall. It's going to be very interesting to see uh, the decisions that they make from here on in. A lot of people want to change. A lot of change has happened at council chambers, that is for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, we know that the housing crisis in Ontario is real. That's housing affordability. That's just housing in general. We need more supply in this province. It's clear with more immigrants coming in, with this city in particular and many others around the Golden Horseshoe, especially getting bigger and bigger, uh, house prices have gone up. We've seen the supply-demand scenario play out, which has uh, driven prices uh, to new levels. And so later on today, the Ford government is expected to table legislation that is going to include some sweeping changes to land use planning across this province. What is it going to look like? And more importantly, what impact is it going to have on housing in this province? Let's ask uh, one of the experts in these fields, Christopher Alexander. He's the president of Remax Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Christopher, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm, I'm fantastic, and uh, I think this is good news. Plans to override municipal zoning rules, so we're going to see potentially uh, more duplexes, more triplexes on single-family lots across this province. Was this an inevitability? Maybe not, but I think it's a really good thing. I mean, if you consider how much red tape and bureaucracy there is in municipalities, specifically in southern Ontario, it's next to impossible to get a project approved, and it has become so unaffordable now, especially since, you know, for example, Toronto has up their development charges. And, you know, it's just these policies have been so out of touch, and then they've, they've doubled down. So I think the Ford government stepping in here and being able to override is a good thing. There's going to be probably a lot of pushback from from residents because of uh, nimbyism or not in my backyard syndrome, which I can certainly appreciate. But you know what what what's been striking to me specifically is we can't have our cake and eat it too. I mean, we we have a housing crisis as far as inventory is concerned. We have less inventory over the last decade than the decade prior. You know in 2022 alone, we when you include refugees from the Ukraine, we have 500, almost 500,000 new Canadians in the country. You know, and we can only build between two and 300,000 units per year. So it's a big challenge. And, you know, I applaud the, the Ontario government for stepping in to hopefully accelerate this. 
when it comes to the value of existing homes, if we're going to see more multi-unit development within these neighborhoods, what will that do to the value of the existing homes? Well, I think it depends on what you build in, in, in the neighborhood. I think you can't just have carte blanche to build whatever you you want or you feel is important like you have to have it fit the neighborhood and as long as it's in line with um you know the standard of of a specific neighborhood and you're not building something so offside that it detracts from the overall look and feel of things um i think it could do wonders for values Christopher Alexander is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Alexander is the president of Remax Canada, and we're talking about new legislation that is expected to be tabled today that will uh, drastically change the land use planning process across this province, one of which is um, fewer appeals, or I guess the possibility of appeals will be drastically reduced. Is that a good thing? Yes, I think it is. I mean, it takes almost... It can take up to three years to get something approved in the city of Toronto, and that's just too long. It, 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 when you consider how many people move to the GTA, I mean, Hamilton included, um, every single year it's about one hundred to 130,000 people, and we can only build a maximum of 44,000 units. That is going to compound the problem of uh, rising prices. And so... Anything that we can do to help speed that process up, as long as it's responsible and you're not approving projects that uh, you know, could be uh, hazardly, which I don't think is going to happen. But um, you know, as long as it's responsible, accelerating projects and approvals is really, really important right now. Lastly, the uh, the role of conservation agencies is apparently just they're just going to fo- focus on their core mandate, which is watershed management. Does this potentially mean that more green space is going to be um, swallowed up, uh, for lack of a better term, by these housing developments? Yeah, it's possible. And you know, it's it's a tough thing, right? It's we want to build up um, to to avoid that. Most it's the most profitable for builders or developers to build smaller units, uh, which are very difficult to raise families in. And so some really tough, critical decisions need to be made on that subject. And, you know, I think we all hope that we can avoid eating up more green space. But, you know, for, uh, practically speaking, I just don't know if it's possible to avoid it for forever and ever. I would agree with that. It is an inevitability at some point down the line. We're going to have to grow a little bit outwards as opposed to upwards. Mr. Alexander, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much for having me. That is Christopher Alexander. He's the president of REMAX Canada. As we discuss new legislation coming up later on today from the Ford government as they will table a bill to include uh, some sweeping changes that will impact land use planning across this province. Um, the provincial government wants to build uh, hundreds of thousands of homes over the next little while, 1.5 million to be exact, over the next 10 years. And this is the plan that they feel is going to achieve that goal. We'll see if it works and when it, it, when the wheels are actually going to start moving uh, in terms of uh, an increased housing supply. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a group in this community called the Hamilton Council on Aging, and it is in the midst of a four-year project to help improve the lives of people who are living with dementia. It's a topic we don't really discuss that much 
on, on this show and many shows, but it is a reality in this community and uh, for millions of people around the world. Tracy Gibbs is the project manager at Hamilton Council on Aging and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Tracy, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Rick. The Empowering Dementia-Friendly Communities Project is underway. It was launched a couple of years ago. This is a four-year initiative. Tell us about it. What is the goal here? Well, the Faces of Dementia, um, the Empowering Dementia-Friendly Communities Project, is a funded project by the Public Health Agency of Canada. And so the Hamilton Council on Aging over the last few years has really been working on, on ways to improve quality of life for people living with dementia in Hamilton and Haldeman and communities. And so we recently just launched uh, Faces of Dementia campaign, uh, which is a really exciting and important initiative of the council. Um, yeah, it's it's really important work. Um, Rick, I don't know. There's there's 200 or um, in 2020 there were 600,000 Canadians living with dementia, <laughs> and by 2050 the number is expected to triple. Wow. to 1.7 million people in Canada. Do we know why? Well, I think it has to do with an aging population. And while dementia is not considered a normal part of aging, it's still the risk factors still increase with age. And so with a growing older population, um, more people will be living with dementia in the future. And, and that really puts a lot of pressure on family members who are caring for these individuals. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, it is a very difficult disease. Um, at the same time, we did a consultation right at the onset of the pandemic. We talked to over 300 people affected by dementia in Hamilton and Haldeman. And we heard a lot about um, their experiences in community life. And one of the things that really stood out was the stigma that they experienced with the dementia diagnosis. Wow, that's that's rather unfortunate. I would have not have guessed that would have been one of the uh, you know resounding um, uh, you know tidbits of feedback from people who were involved in this campaign. Yeah, they and it was it was um, you know people talked about really wanting to still contribute to community, and they talked about you know really wanting to continue to do the things that they love to do in community, visit you know go to restaurants, shopping, you know things that people love to do, but. Um, you know, we're a bit afraid that maybe they wouldn't be able to access the help that they needed or that the spaces and the environments weren't accessible to, to them anymore. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Tracy Gibbs, Project Manager with the Hamilton Council on Aging. They're in the midst of a four-year project called Empowering Dementia-Friendly Communities, and part of that is a campaign called Faces of Dementia, and you referenced it a couple of minutes mm -hmm. ago, where you invited people to participate in this campaign to share how uh, being diagnosed with dementia has impacted their lives. What did you hear from these folks? Yeah, well, I think... We co-created this campaign with people living with dementia locally, and um, they really wanted to share their stories about what living de with dementia was like, also what they wanted the community to know, and what they wanted other people living with dementia to know. So through short films about their stories and beautiful imagery, um, you know, it really expands people's understanding about dementia and breaks down some of those negative perceptions that they have to live with, yeah. How many people did you talk to? Well, with our consultation, we talked to over 300. There are seven campaign per, uh, members of the campaign, all with unique perspectives, but a similar message that I'm more than my diagnosis. 
Yeah, and that's that. You know, there, there's people behind these diagnoses. They they're yeah. living lives. They have uh, spouses, perhaps. They have children. Yeah. They have relatives who are all caring for them. And I, I would imagine they were all at kind of different stages of of yeah. dementia. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, different different stages, different ages. I think it really breaks down some of the the myths around around that you know uh, dementia is just um, something that affects older adults. Um, because some younger people have young onset of dementia. And so we want to make sure that as a community, you know, we can respond to their needs so that they can actively engage in community life for as long as possible. Are there warning signs for dementia? You know, just speaking personally, you know, my, my, I would uh, recount, uh, you know, a memory from years ago and, you know, those kind of memories start to fade a little bit. Uh, Is that normal? Is that a warning sign or a red flag? Yeah, and I think I think it's really difficult. There are, you know, there are symptoms and, and things that happen. Memory is one of them. Um, one of the things that um, there's so many different symptoms of dementia. Every person's experience is really unique. And so one of the things that we're really trying to encourage people to do is that if you are concerned, that you go and see your doctor. Um, you know, um, dementia is one of the most uh, common um diseases in terms of what Canadians would say they never want to get, right? And so people do not seek diagnosis early. But the earlier you seek that diagnosis, the, the more um, access you have to supports and resources. So I, what I would say to that is if you think that something is different or changing, to visit your doctor. Uh, as part of this uh, Faces of Dementia campaign, you have a Faces of Dementia Hamilton Gallery at the mm-hmm. Sackville Hill Senior Center. Tell us about that. Yes, so this is an interactive gallery um, that is uh, open to the public at Sackville Hill during their operation hours, and it will be there until mid-November. And it's it's where you will see the beautiful imagery um, through the use of QR codes and technology. You can um, be linked to um, people talking about their stories. Um, so it's a very interesting experience. We're really thrilled uh, to have that available. And um, so we would encourage people from the public to visit that site and visit that gallery um, and let us know what you think. And you can get more information, coahamilton.ca. Tracy, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks for having me. That is Tracy Gibbs, Project Manager, Hamilton Council on Aging, as they are in the midst of the Empowering Dementia-Friendly Communities Project. And part of that is the Faces of Dementia campaign. And you can check out the gallery at the Sackville Hill Senior Center. Some uh, phenomenal, interesting stories to be told, that is for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We've been talking about JFE Soji Power Canada and this uh, second installment now of our five-part series examining the energy transformation sector and how JFE Soji impacts Hamilton, Burlington, and beyond. And we're pleased to be joined by the president and CEO of JFE Soji Power Canada, Ron Harper. Ron, good morning. Welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you uh, for having me. This is, as we heard yesterday in our first installments, th- this is a burgeoning industry and you know a sector that is not only vitally important, but on the cusp of exploding in terms of jobs, opportunities, uh, and the importance for this province and, and really globally. Can you touch on the energy transformation sector and how it's evolved and you know what's next on the horizon? Sure. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right about the uh, 
potential for investment. And I was reading actually an article recently that talked about uh, the majority of projections for renewable energy and decarbonization is going to drive energy investments in the future. And it's, it's, it's really exciting. And we're really happy to be part of that. Uh, the whole subject's driven by our demand to protect the environment and, and decarbonization uh, and reduce CO2 emissions. Uh, our society's relied a lot in the last 100 or so years on oil and gasoline as its primary fuel source. And a lot of that's now shifting in the future or projected to shift to uh, uh, clean electrical sources. And, and that's a pretty major shift that affects uh, generation of electricity and, and, and power and how we distribute it and, and how we consume and use it, especially in our transportation systems. With our growing electrification needs, and I'm not just talking about EV vehicles or passenger vehicles, but uh, for, for cities and communities uh, around the world, they're looking at electrification. You know, we're going to have an electrified LRT in the city of Hamilton. We know that uh, fleets, businesses and municipalities are going to go that route as well. The question is, as we go down this road is do we have enough of this energy to go around uh i think uh i guess simply uh, we're going to have to match the capacity to supply the energy with the growth uh, uh if you look going forward we don't have enough uh, electrical supply today for what we may need in 20 years and that's one of the things that's driving our our market sector right now uh this we our company supplies uh, specialized electrical uh, materials and, and components to uh, industries like electrical transformers. And our industry over the last couple of years anticipating this growth has just uh, increased in demand uh, significantly. And uh, it is going to have to, as you said, match the generation capacity is going to have to start matching and the ability to distribute it is going to need to match the the big demand especially as our transportation sector shifts to more electrification because that's where a lot of the growth is going to come from we've been speaking about electrification for a few years now and probably you know way back to the kyoto accord in 1998 but uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, you know that that demand is increasing was was that level of demand expected did you see this coming uh, I think uh, nobody really had a good crystal ball in what the projections were going to look like and how it was going to go. And it is such a, a, a complicated uh, situation, especially when you're, you need to not only just generate more electricity, but you need to build the network to support it and the infrastructure to supply that. Uh, whether it's in our industry, you know, more raw materials, uh, uh, production equipment, it really takes a lot of work to pull that all together. I think the projections for electrification, especially of our transportation network, are getting clearer now. Uh, and as people look at um, initiatives like Net Zero 2050, which many uh, regions and countries around the world have committed to, even though that's 30 years sounds like a long uh, time, we need to act right now to make sure that we we put things in place to achieve that goal. And it is quite a daunting task, uh, but uh, I, I think uh, uh, with good leadership and, and, and strong support, uh, I think we can get there. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Ron Harper, President and CEO of JFE Soji Power Canada. This is part two of our five-part series with JFE Soji. 
There has been, as you know, a shortage of skilled tradespeople uh, across many different sectors. What does it look like for your industry? Well, I, I think that we're no different than anybody else. Uh, you're absolutely uh, right. Uh, skilled uh, trades are in very high demand right now. And I think you look at the what we've been talking about with our industry, just building the electrical capacity, the equipment and all the things that go into that requires people in skilled trades and uh, and semi-skilled trades. Uh, it's been it's been really tough, uh, increasingly tough over the last few years. I think through the as we come out of the pandemic, it's gotten worse. Uh, but certainly uh, I support uh, whatever efforts we can put in place to accelerate the, the number of skilled trades people are made available because that uh, that's really going to be necessary for us to uh, achieve our goals in the next uh, upcoming decades. To that end, JFE Soji Power Canada hosting a blue carpet event. You're in hiring mode. You're in grow mode here. Yes, uh, we are. We're really excited. Uh, we're we have a, a, a blue carpet event uh, next week that we're trying to great, create a great experience for people who have the time to visit us. It's not just meant as a, uh, a hiring event. It's meant for as a community event. Uh, our company has a really interesting and, 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 and really uh, nice story. And uh, we have lots of opportunities in the sector we're in going forward. And we just want to share that story with uh, uh, with our community and with potential job seekers and, and let them know how they might be able to support uh, uh, this exciting and challenging future. And, uh, you know, if people want to know more about it, they can go to our website, jfehireme.com. And, uh, you know, we certainly look forward to a great event next week and a lot of people uh, uh, attending. Do you have a, a target number in terms of how many people you need? Uh, right now, uh, I think we're probably 25, 30 short of where we would like to be, which is, uh, seems to be a pretty consistent number since the beginning of the year. Uh, coming out of the pandemic, as I mentioned before, our industry has been in very high demand, and uh, uh, that's what we need today. But we do have plans, given our sector and the growth going forward, uh, that we're going to need uh, a lot more. So uh, we're planning for the future as well. Ron, appreciate the time. I know we're going to uh, discuss uh, some similar um, uh, issues on Friday, and we'll dig down deep to some of the things that JFE Soji Power Canada is going to be concentrating on in the years to come. Thanks for your time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. Have a good day. You too. That's Ron Harper, President and CEO, JFE Soji Power Canada. You can get more information online, jfesojipower.com. That's J-F-E-S-H-O-J-I power.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. According to many experts out there, the economic hardships of this past year, and certainly the last couple of years, pandemic included, have certainly been hard, but they're saying, wait till you get a load of next year. So what is going to happen in 2023? Here with his best guesstimate is Ian Lee, Associate Professor in the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning, Rick. Doing very well, thank you. Some experts predicting that as challenging as this year has been, next year is going to hit our economy even harder. Are you buying what they're selling? I, I think that's just inevitable uh, because of what's happened over the past two or three years. If I can just put a big picture frame on this just for a moment, I was arguing literally back in 2020, 2021, that we were overreacting. Um, yes, the pandemic was serious. 
It was not the Great Depression. Why am I saying that? Because we drove interest rates down at the Bank of Canada below the lowest rate ever in our history, including the Great Depression. In other words, the rates did not go this low in the Great Depression. So we were saying, with our policy uh, decisions, this was worse, and it wasn't. And then we poured uh, two-thirds of a trillion dollars into the economy. And remember, people completely forget this. We've been, we have a safety net in Canada. It's documented by StatsCan. I've looked up the data. It's $500 billion a year, the year before COVID. We were pumping $500 billion a year, federal and 10 provincial governments, and that's all the income support programs, EI, old age pension, guaranteed income supplements, subsidized housing, as well as public health care and public education. That's classic social policy safety net. Half a trillion a year. Then we put another three quarters of a trillion into the economy. We, they put so much in, we ended up, we couldn't spend it all. We banked $300 billion of it. That's a third of a trillion. So where am I going with this? No, we didn't cause the inflation, but we certainly made it much worse. And now we have to face the consequences of those decisions of overstimulating, going too low with interest rates, putting too much fiscal stimulus into the system instead of it being more targeted. And now... We have a raging inflation fire, and now we, the, we have to face the consequences, which is higher interest rates, because there's been 2,000 years of history about uh, inflation and governments, and Nobel Prizes have been issued, and we are going to, as a consequence, most likely tip into recession um, uh, in, in early 23. So th- this, could be, this was uh, predictable. This, you could see this train wreck coming. In regards to a what will be a global recession, Canada's not alone in this, what's your best guess on how long it lasts? Because I've heard people saying, you know, it's going to be a few months to potentially more than a year. My sense is, uh, my sense is, is that um, it's going to be not that um, uh, long and not that deep. And I want to explain that very quickly. Uh, I was, I'm old enough, I'm not a young man, I was, I came of age in the 70s, and why that's relevant is I was a mortgage manager at the fourth largest branch of the Bank of Montreal in all Canada called Ottawa Main Office in 1980. When inflation hit 14% and interest rates hit 20, that's 2-0, 20. And it, we finally got rid of the inflation. We killed the inflation. We drove it to the ground, but we did so with the great deepest recession since the Great Depression, and that was the brutal recession of 1981-82. It did cure for a third of a century and gave us low low inflation for a third of a century. So when you look at the record, I have looked at research on this by other economists uh, who have looked at this, I should say by economists, I'm a policy guy, Um, the the record shows that most of the time you're, uh, when you use interest rates to attack inflation, you um, tip the economy into recession because it's not, a, it's not an algorithm or a formula. You know? it's, there's a lot of judgment about this data, and they, you know, they're, they're judgments about the future, you know, how quickly the economy is cooling and so forth. So it's not, it's not a scientific algorithm or formula. You just punch in some numbers and they say, here's the exact right number that will exactly bring you down without going into recession. Sometimes central banks overshoot. 
I think we're probably going to tip into a recession. But one more quick point, why it won't be like 1980, because people say, well, then it sounds like it's going to be like that. No, because in the 70s, 80s, 90s, there were way too many boomers. It was high chronic unemployment. Right now, we are in the exact opposite situation. We've got almost a million jobs unfilled, and that's going to temper or mitigate this recession, because there's going to be employers out there, some listening to me right now talking to you, who are going to say, wait a minute, I just went through the pandemic. I laid people off and I couldn't get them back. And so some businesses who have the resources are going to keep their people on the payroll, even if business goes down, because they know how horribly difficult it is to get them back. So I think this is going to be not a deep recession. It's going to be more mild, and it won't go as long as the Great Recession of 81-82. Great insight, as always, from Ian Lee. Ian, really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, with his thoughts on what is going to be, as he says, a shorter and not as deep recession as we've seen in previous instances. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility, and I will work day in, day out to deliver for the British people. Rishi Sunak has become Britain's Prime Minister after being asked to form a government by King Charles III. Sunak met at Buckingham Palace with the King today after Charles just recently accepted the resignation of Liz Truss. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. So is this good news? What's the go-forward plan? How will Britain recover from this political chaos that they have been thrust into over the last uh, couple of months or so. Akeem Hurlman is a professor of political science at Carleton University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton to break it all down. Akeem, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Rick. The question is, will Rishi Sunak provide stability not only for the Conservative Party in the UK, but for the nation as a whole? This is the question that many people are asking themselves. What do you think? Well, I think he's their best chance to provide some stability, at least in the short run. He uh, stands for the centrist wing of his party. He uh, is the former finance minister. He uh, is very experienced, therefore, in managing the British economy. And uh, the hope is that after the disastrous short term of Liz Truss, he will be able to calm things down and pursue uh, more middle-of-the-road economic policies uh, that uh, stabilize the British economy, which is in really poor shape. What do you think Prime Minister Sunak's first order of business is? Is it restoring that unity, or is that automatic given his uh, rise to the to the PM position? Is it is it something economic-related? Does he have to tackle major issues right off the hop to, you know, gain the trust of, of Britons? He does, yeah. And I mean, the most pressing issue clearly is the economy. Uh, the policies that Liz Truss brought in and that she campaigned in over the summer uh, led to uh, making inflation worse, a rise of interest rates, and uh, many people fear that they can no longer pay their mortgages. Uh, so he has to find a response to that. Um, so uh, pursue economic policies that uh, 
uh, address inflation, uh, that might mean cutting services or finding efficiencies in the budget somewhere. So that's the biggest priority. Uh, but there are other priorities as well. For instance, the situation in Northern Ireland remains unresolved. The uh, uh, regional government there does not come together. And by the end of this week, uh, the government will have to decide if they call new elections in Northern Ireland or extend the deadline further for government formation. And then, of course, also related to Northern Ireland, the issue with the European Union regarding the uh, so-called Northern Ireland Protocol, which is the pro post-Brexit arrangements for um, trade uh, between uh, Northern Ireland and the UK and uh, the rest uh, of the European Union, these issues also still need to be worked out. Prime Minister Sunak is a, a former Treasury chief under former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He is, and we should not ignore this at all, Britain's first leader of colour and the first Hindu to take the top job. What does that mean? What significance does that hold? Well, it does, surely, it does clearly show, uh, first of all, the uh, increasing uh, diversity of the British society and also the British Conservative Party. I mean, the, the British Conservative Party um, is not in very good shape. But one thing that you can say uh, in its favor is that uh, uh, under Boris Johnson, uh, it has uh, become a party that is actually quite diverse and does reflect um, uh, to a significant extent, the diversity of the British population. So uh, in, in that sense, yes, uh, it's a first, and uh, and uh, that that's quite positive, surely. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Akeem Hurlman, is a professor of political science at Carleton University. We're talking about the new British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, who has, been, uh, who has risen to the post and has been put in place and accepted by King Charles III as well. He's 42. He's the youngest British Prime Minister in about 200 years. Uh, the flip side of that is there was a chance that Boris Johnson was going to hop back into this race and potentially become the UK's Prime Minister again. Are Britain's breathing a sigh of relief in that regard? Well, I think many people are, um, especially also many people in the Conservative caucus, because they brought uh, Boris Johnson down just earlier this year, mainly because of his many personal scandals, including most prominently the uh, parties in Downing Street while the country was under COVID lockdowns. Uh, so his own caucus uh, brought him down. But he still has fans in that caucus, and they did uh, consider uh, asking him to come back uh, in the country. Uh, he he still has his fans as well, uh, and um, some conservatives said that he uh, would have been uh, the most electable candidate because uh, not too long ago, in 2019, he scored this uh, very significant victory for his party in the last general election. But a lot of time has passed since then, and um, it would have been very difficult for Boris Johnson to make a fresh start so shortly after he had been pushed out by his own party. With Mr. Sunak now as British PM, is there any impact on Canada? Um, well, uh, the UK is an important partner for Canada, and Canada must therefore be interested in stability in the UK. So I think this will be good news. It should be uh, straightforward to work with uh, Rishi Sunak and, and, and his government. And uh, Canada has appreciated the United Kingdom as a partner, and in, in part uh, even because of its uh, increased independence from the European Union. Uh, so um, that, that makes it all the more important, though, that this 
this country is well governed, and quite frankly, it wasn't under list trust. So I think uh, for Canada, uh, this uh, should be seen as good news. Akeem, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for your insight and analysis. Thank you. Akeem Hurlman is a professor of political science at Carleton University. Rishi Sunak, the new PM in Britain. He worked as a hedge fund manager in the U.S. with Goldman Sachs. And uh, that's where he met his wife, Akshada Murdy. They have two daughters, the new uh, Prime Minister of Britain, Rishi Sunak, a 42-year-old who is uh, set to make waves, I am sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.